1: Good morning. Welcome
3: to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, and you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11, live, Eastern Time, and of course we archive the show so that you can listen to it any time. Um, also, listen to my new show. It's not so new anymore, but that's Thursday mornings in Albany, New York on WCDB 90.9 FM. Uh, called the social workers and uh, i co-host that show with another social worker and that too is archived that's nine to ten eastern on thursday mornings and it's also on the net well today's show has a theme i think and the theme not i think the theme is responsibility so i have two guests who are going to talk about responsibility but in a very different way and of course that's the theme usually for the new years taking on responsibility making good choices uh... the first guest is dr susan albers and we're going to be talking about her new book but i deserve this chocolate the 50 most common diet derailing excuses and how to outwit them very important topic as says money or most of you probably know and i'm quoting dr richard carmona surgeon general of the united states uh, the major, or one of the, not, I think the major crisis in America today is obesity. It's the fastest growing cause of disease and death in America, and it's completely preventable. Of course, that's if we make the right choices and take responsibility. My second guest is John Izzo, author, uh, and he's a PhD as well. He is, his new book is Stepping Up, how, and this is responsibility in general, how taking responsibility changes everything. But first guest is here, Dr. Susan Albers author of but I deserve this chocolate welcome to the show Susan
4: thank you so much happy new year
3: happy new year great to have you and I I guess I want to also mention that you've done your work has been featured in Oprah magazine prevention magazine Wall Street Journal and that you blog for the Huffington Huffington Post in psychology today and you can get Susan at eatingmindfully.com all right
4: I've said enough let's talk about the book Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, but, you know, um, when people hear the the topic and the title, the 50 Most Common Diet Derailing Excuses, you know what they usually say is they sort of laugh and say, well, there's 50 in the book and many of them sound familiar, but we have many, many more. And there's just an endless amount of reasons that we want to get started and we want to get going eating healthy, but our mind just kind of stands in the way.
3: Yeah. So we want to eat healthy. you're saying that we have good intentions and we yes. have good motivations but somehow we aren't able to do it. what sta- what stands in the way? Why can't we make good choices about food? Or uh, chocolate? Boy,
4: there's so many so many different reasons and and we have to keep in mind that boy we're you know we're fighting an uphill battle when clients come into my office and say, you know I'm just struggling so much with eating in a mindful way and they're really hard on themselves I have to remind them that we live in this environment that is filled with fast food and good foods and comfort foods all over the place. So it's understandable that it's hard to eat in a mindful way. But in the book, what I really take a look at is what's going on in your mind and your responses to the food around you. Because most of our, our challenges really start within the mind that, again, you want to get started, but your mind gives you all of these excuses to stop, such as I'm too tired, I'm too stressed out, I, you know, I can't today. I'll start my diet tomorrow. And then it just completely puts an end to it. So this is part of the problem,
3: and this is a perfect time to be talking about it because
4: it's Happy
3: New Year. It's January. And I mean, I'm making up a statistic, but you probably could say, you know, 80% of the people that I know are saying, okay, now I'm going to go on a diet or I'm going to lose 10 pounds or I'm going to lose 20 pounds. And then they do exactly what you say, give those, I'll start my diet tomorrow. I mean, you have these in the book, I can't afford to eat healthy. I eat less than other people i have pms all of those excuses
4: absolutely and losing weight is the number one year's resolution, and that's that's okay, but I guess I would encourage people to tweak that a little bit that instead of focusing this year on losing weight, perhaps it's about focusing on being healthier and eating more mindfully. and notice how it kind of shifts a little bit your rea- your emotional reaction to it when you hear that word diet sometimes it's very triggering for for many of us but boy that that notion of eating in a more mindful way a healthy way something that is that we can embrace and it, and it doesn't make us feel like we have to starve ourselves and and get rid of all the good foods this you so know, this year make that make that your goal
3: i like the way you say that because i think i think that really hits on something cuz mindful eating has a, a positive feel to it diet feels like deprivation and the minute i hear deprivation and most people i don't want to do it i don't want to be on a diet but mindful absolutely. eating
4: yeah absolutely the number one um, thought that stands in the way or that derails us is is saying to ourselves i'll start my diet tomorrow and one of the reasons is is what just as we're talking about is because that word dieting is so triggering it it makes you feel like oh i'm going to have to starve so who would want to start today but eating mindfully is something that we can start today, and it may be some small steps as uh, leaving a bite or two on your plate or just noticing how you're eating. If you're eating in front of the TV, slowing down, um, turning off the TV actually so that you can completely focus on your food. My mantra is when you eat, just eat.
3: How do you eat mindfully? I know that uh, you're a mother, a young mother, uh, I know I was in that position once, and there are a lot of women out there, a lot of women in my audience, who end up uh, thinking that they're mindless, actually, why they're taking care of their kids. And they're in the kitchen, and they're cooking for everybody, and they've just finished coming, you know, they came home from work, and they are mindlessly running around the kitchen feeding people, eating what their kids eat off their plate. Uh, you know, that's not a, and, and then over, you know, a period of a few years, they put on 10, 20, 30
4: pounds. Yes, I'll tell you, it's such a challenge for women, particularly mothers, new mothers. And in fact, I wrote a whole blog article about this on Psychology Today about some tips for for new moms um, because they, you know, they are they're kind of putting all of their energy in taking care of their kids, and and you lose focus of yourself. So some things that can be helpful for for moms in eating more mindfully is making sure that you're sitting down. I mean, how many times are moms kind of running around feeding this kid that kid and they're popping some food in their mouth here and there, and they completely lose track of how much they're eating. So if you're going to eat, make sure it's on a plate, sitting down. Even if you just eat, you know, in a minute or two, but just making sure that you're putting some focus onto it can be helpful. Also, role modeling for your kids. One, one way that we eat very mindlessly is eating in the car. You know, we eat between this and that, and sometimes you, you have to because, you know, you're on the run. Um, but that's a really easy way to lose track of of how much you're eating, as well as as you're you're driving and you're eating at the same time. So, as best as you can, make sure you make that plan. Eat at the table if you can.
3: And here's another one I want to talk about because I I just got back from a, a two week cruise, family cruise, and I've been in a few airports and I sit and I watch a lot of not just mothers, fathers, families feeding their children, kind of as for to soothe them to soothe them or to you know, because they want them to be quiet or they don't want them to be running around the airport. And I'm, as I'm observing this, I'm thinking, I don't think that's a good thing to do. That's not what mindful eating, it's, isn't that kind of sabotaging good eating habits?
4: It is, you know, and we, and I think sabotage is, is such a good word, is that there's many ways that we unknowingly sabotage. We don't intentionally sabotage. It just—I think sometimes it just kind of happens because we're on autopilot. And what this book is really about is shifting out of autopilot and becoming more mindful. We have tons of mindless eating habits. Whether it's you know sitting in front of the TV and mindlessly popping food in your mouth, or eating at twelve o'clock on the dot, whether you're hungry or not. Um, but we really have to start shifting out of those those uh, automatic pilot. Behaviors that are really about what you're saying—those those self-sabotaging things that are happening.
3: Susan, what about uh, cravings? Because you hear that too. Um, I crave this. I crave well. I crave chocolate, and I deserve this chocolate. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> the, the very
4: title of the book. Yeah.
3: Yes, and that's the title of the book. But I deserve this chocolate. For those of you who just t- uh, tuned in, and I'm talking to Susan Albert. Who is a psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic? And uh, but you don't really deserve that chocolate, do you? Or whatever, or ice cream? I I really just I need. I had a tough day. I, you know every you know I had meetings all day. I come home and I eat a quart of ice cream because I really deserve it.
4: Um, yeah. And and uh, boy, too, we all say this one to ourselves. And and many of my clients will say this is a pattern that developed really early in their life that they had a parent who said, you know, great job on on your homework. Um, let's go get ice cream or, you know, really rewarding them with food. And then as adults, we have that same pattern. Had a great day at work. I You know, I deserve some chocolate. And it becomes this automatic habit again to reward ourselves with food, which is really dangerous because in the long run, run what is really rewarding is feeling good in our bodies and and feeling healthy. Um, so we, the book teaches you some skills to to rewire this kind of notion of rewarding yourself with food, and it's a challenge because we all do it. And I love Give us some about.
3: examples in the book, Susan, and you know, really specific examples of how, of these skills and and uh, some of the case histories that you discuss, and how we can apply those so that not only do I, I mean, I think not only do we say we deserve the chocolate because we did a great job, but we deserve it because we had a crummy day and we need to reward. Our, we need some comfort, so we use it both ways. I think, but. Um.
4: I was uh, yeah, I was working with a woman who, um, as you're saying, used chocolate pretty much exclusively as as her comfort item, and many of us do, I mean, as soon as we feel stressed out, we say, "I need that chocolate, and um you know what, and chocolate does work, you know it kind of gives us that instant pleasure, instant buzz, but what research shows is that it it only lasts about three minutes and then and then that feeling completely fades, and that's why you keep going for more and more. Um, to get that instantaneous pleasure. So when we were working on this on this habit, you know, she first thing she did was really just kind of be aware of it, that any time she started to crave chocolate, her first instinct, you know, was to just say, okay, I crave chocolate, obey that thought. And we really had to slow down and kind of first start to notice the thought because it would play in the back of her mind, like back around music, and, and she'd respond to it, as if, it, you know, again, if it was an order, she had to do it. So we slowed that down and, and noticed how often it came to mind. And and usually, when she craved chocolate, there was something else going on for her. Whether it be, and this was a new new mom, it was often when she was tired. You know, that was pretty much her clue that she was tired and she needed to slow down a little bit or, or get some get some help. And um, when when that happened, you know, we we had to find ways for her. To reward herself, to comfort herself, in ways that were manageable. That that when you have little kids, so maybe it was something like getting a hot cup of tea or um, taking a few minutes, uh, some deep breaths to calm, to calm herself down, or taking a few minutes to herself. Um, and it was those things that, although they sound small and they're not as that instant pleasure that you get from chocolate, they are comfort, and that's truly what you're seeking is. Comfort, not pleasure, that, that you get from chocolate. And comfort is what's going to last you a lot longer.
3: See, I think those are really important things. It's the small things that you have to do on a daily basis, as you're describing it, that's really important. I mean, I thought of another one that I used to use sometimes, um, you know, when I, you're, you're sitting there and you're tired and you're with the kids or um, or even at work and you want to pop that chocolate bar I mean, you can remove yourself from the scene as well, if possible, especially if you're home. Maybe step outside. Uh, maybe get in the car and, and go and do something else if you can. Um, and so, as you say, you're mindful that you need to do something else to right. to satisfy that, that craving.
4: Um, and, and what's interesting is once you begin rewiring your brain to go to something else that is comforting, whether it be that – You'll notice that you actually start to crave that, that you, you'll notice yourself having that craving for that nice hot soothing cup of tea instead of the chocolate. And it's amazing because sometimes you don't believe that that can actually happen, but it does. And one of the, one of the excuses in the book are, um, relates to why try because it's not going to change anyway. That's a thought that talks us out of it. And that's one that's really about fear. You know, and I think I, I have to mention that because this is something that stands in the way for so many people, that they're afraid that this really can't change, you know, that it's that has been so challenging. They've had many different failures with diets. And if this sounds like you, begin by just kind of visualizing yourself having some success and make these changes that you don't have to actually do them, but you have to kind of get build your confidence that this is something that you can do. And yet if you can't see it in your mind, it's not going to happen.
3: Susan, does it also work? and I do this sometimes, it works for me, but it's kind of, it's what you're saying, but maybe a little bit of the, um, the the negative side of it. I mean, I have negative role models. I mean, I will have people in, or think about people in my mind perhaps, and this is being really honest, who are obese or who are sick because of they have problems related to their obesity. So if I want to, or feel myself overeating, I'll think about that. You know, you talk about mindful eating, and it prevents me from overeating.
4: Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think that we we all have to find what works for us. And I think what you're saying is that you create this image in your mind, and that image is what brings you back into that into the moment because, you know, we get into that autopilot eating, and then that image that you're saying pops into your mind, and it brings you back into the moment. And it may be, uh, you know, a negative role model or maybe even a positive role model that, you know, you think of a, a friend who is a really healthy eater, and it and bringing that image to mind of how they eat or what they're eating kind of brings you, brings you back to the moment and inspires you to, to do the right thing. So sometimes with my clients, it's, it's finding what works for you that's motivating, that, that gets you going in the right direction, that brings you back into the moment. Cause so often we're stuck thinking about the past, feeling guilty about everything that we've eaten or our minds are so far in the future thinking about those 10 pounds down, down the line, that we miss the moment. And this moment, this next bite, is the only one that you have control over. You can't erase the past or, or jump into the future.
3: That's so important because I think that's another one of the number one excuses that, well, I already ate five pieces of chocolate. I might as well finish the box. Well, you ate five pieces. Five minutes ago. That doesn't mean you have to finish the box now. Right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And
4: in the second part of the book is all about what I call, um, I guess, they're kind of like the backseat driver thoughts. That 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 little voice in the back of your mind that's kind of like a backseat driver that's yelling at you, saying, "Do this, do that. Why did you turn this way? Why did you turn that way?" And we all have that voice. And it's it's that voice that you know kind of gets us derailed um and we just have to listen to our own instinct and our own intuition of which way to go and not let that backseat driver voice try and you know steer us in the in the wrong direction or criticize us to the point that we get so so flustered and it's possible you know on my website it's eatingmindfully.com i've got lots of lots of uh free downloads for people tools and tips and there's even a motivational poster that you can print out and and hang on your refrigerator to give you some of these more compassionate, positive thoughts to counter that little backseat driver that's sitting on your shoulder.
3: One of the things that you have, which in in your book, and I I imagine this is what you're talking about on the website, but your awareness checklist, that really resonated with me. It really makes it so that you have to be mindful of what you're eating. And so you very specifically go through, what, 10 or 12 uh, things on your checklist to pay attention to when you're eating. I want to talk about a few couple of those
4: yeah you know and yes and and I think I included that checklist to help people to be more in the moment because you can be you know you say you don't have to make a lot of changes if if you're somebody who says to yourself I'm too overwhelmed you know I can't make any changes I think going through this awareness checklist can be helpful because it's saying you don't have to Eat anything radically different. Do what you're already doing, but with more awareness. So, for example, if you're going to be eating pizza tonight, that's fine. You know, eat that with total awareness. So it's things like making sure that you're sitting down, um, making sure that the TV is off, that you're focused on what you're eating, that you're being mindful and savoring each bite, really tuning in to the taste, the texture of that pizza, Um, being aware of how much you're eating and in what way, maybe making sure that you put your fork down between each bite. So, again, it's it's eating that pizza, eating exactly what you'd be eating, but doing it in a more mindful way. And and as you start to eat in a more mindful way, you'll notice that you enjoy food more, and that's when you eat less. So with eating that pizza, you know, you may find yourself eating um, one less slice or or even leaving a couple bites, and those couple bites add up after time.
3: Yep, They make a difference, and I, and I have an example of uh, what you're talking about in terms of what you shouldn't do here. I'm, always, I'm giving <laughs> the negative side of all this. Uh, I just was on a plane, as I said, and I'm flying to uh, go on this cruise, and there's the plane is full, and there's a, a man who's obviously obese who's sitting across from me, and he needs a, one, uh, an extension for his seatbelt, and he's eating throughout the entire flight, which is a three-hour flight. And then, we, you, know, yeah, you know, when you stand up to, and you're waiting to, to get off the plane, he was popping in M&Ms one after the next, and you talk about not being mindful. It was a continuous kind of eating, and even in a situation where you're standing up in a plane where it was difficult to be
4: popping in the food, that's what he was doing. So wow. So and uh-huh. it, and sometimes it's helpful to be able to sort of step aside and observe someone else's behavior because when we're in it ourselves, you know, it sounds like you know, I'm wondering if he was even aware of it. I also wonder given that you were on the plane, I wonder how anxious he was about being on that plane. Was he really I'm doubting he was really hungry, but my guess is he was self-soothing anxiety about being on that plane through food which oftentimes we do, that, you know, we're comfort eating and we're, we're self-medicating some sort of other feelings. We're not really hungry at all. I mean, very little of the eating that we do, the extra eating that we do during the day has to do with hunger, that we're eating because we're bored, we're stressed out, we're anxious. And when we become mindful of those times, in my last book, 50 Ways to Soothe Yourself Without Food, I talk all about this, about how often we use food to soothe and comfort ourselves and when we take that out and put something healthier back in, like, for example, this man, you know, maybe he needed to do some deep breathing or meditation or, or um, you know, if, he, if it was severe anxiety, some medication to help to reduce that anxiety. But it sounds like he was completely self-medicating with food throughout that flight. Yeah,
3: yeah I think you're probably absolutely right. I think that that, uh, and this kind of brings us to one of the points you have in your checklist, of ga- always gauging your level of hunger how hungry are you
4: really, right, I mean, and, and, and eat accordingly. Yeah, and you can start doing that by asking yourself on a scale from 1 to 10, how hungry are you? Because not all hunger is the same. So 10 being that you're completely stuffed like a Thanksgiving meal, 1 being that you are starving, you know, very starving, very, very, very hungry. Engage where you are on that scale. And doing that before you take even a bite is going to help you to check in and say, okay, well, how hungry am I really? And and it'll open up some of those questions like, when was the last time I ate? Because sometimes it's not very clear, and many of my clients will tell me that, that they have no idea if they're hungry or not, and that's okay because our mindless eating environment has warped, completely warped our perception of hunger. And you know that when, if you've ever been to a dietitian and they bring out those those little food samples and they show it to you and they say okay here's a portion size and you go, and you say to yourself oh my goodness that's so small that's how you know that that um, your perceptions have been really warped that our expectations be based on food and restaurants and how much they give us um, we we end up not knowing are we really hungry or are we just eating because we feel stressed we feel bored or just because it's even there Susan, what about this, that clients
3: who will say this to you or, or anyone else? Uh, well, I don't want to do this because, you know, I don't want to have to be thinking about food all the time and should I be eating this and should I not be eating that and how hungry am I and am I just popping food in my mouth? I just want to enjoy it. So this is my one time I just want to enjoy. So I don't want to be mindful. I don't want to think about it. Well, how do you respond to that?
4: Well, that sounds like somebody who has been dieting too much. That sounds like... What I would hear from a yo-yo dieter, that they have gone on diets in the past and they've become obsessed with each and every calorie, eat this, don't eat that, you know, that kind of mentality, and it began to rule their mind. It sounds like they became very anxious about what they ate. Yeah, and who, who would want to do that? So if someone says that to me, that they're afraid, and there's that word fear again, if they're afraid that doing this is going to um, actually make things worse or that it's going to take away from the pleasure of food, they're still thinking of the diet mentality. Mindful eating is very different. It's about savoring your food, enjoying your food, allowing yourself to eat the foods that you love but in a new way with awareness and with the, the non-judgment. And it's not to give yourself license to eat you know, whatever and however much you want. You're doing that in tandem with are you hungry, are you not hungry, being mindful of those factors. Um, even the taste of food. You know, um, sometimes when we eat chocolate, our minds are on to the next piece of chocolate before we even finish the one that we have. We're thinking the next one is going to make me happy and not even really tasting enjoying the chocolate that we have in our mouth. In my workshop um, that I do with people, it's a mindful eating workshop. I teach people how to eat chocolate in a mindful way of, as they're picking up the chocolate, opening up the foil, listening to the crinkle of that foil as they open it, putting it up to their nose, really smelling it. And how often do we do that? I mean, usually we're sort of just unwrapping it as quickly as we can and and putting it in our mouth. But as you slow down that process, you begin to enjoy it and savor it. And it doesn't cause obsessiveness. We're really talking about being much more aware without the hypervigilance.
3: And as you describe it, you're talking about being much more sensual about your eating and enjoying it. I have one last comment. We have two minutes left, so I just want to say I I have a friend, uh, a man who has lost about 30 pounds, and he practices mindful meditation, and he talked about how he was able to do it, and one of the sort of a mantra that he kept in mind was he said, I'm not dieting, I am being mindful, and I the I don't know what you would call it uh, the vision is I'm going to live my life as a thin man I am going to and that's kind of the overall uh, umbrella to how he eats I'm going that's it I'm going to live my life as a thin man and then how you do it mindfully as you describe in your book which I want to mention again but I deserve this chocolate the 50 most common diet derailing excuses and how to outwit them Susan Albers psychologist the Cleveland Clinic And Susan's website, Dr. Albert's website is eatingmindfully.com. So give us any a comment or something you can leave us with for the new year about mindful eating.
4: Well, you you I think you hit the nail on the head about that. It's helpful to have a mantra and keeping that mantra in your mind and when you're struggling, bringing it to mind. My mantra that I use and you know that I encourage other people to use if it fits for them is eat, drink and be mindful.
3: I love it. Great. Thanks so
4: much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And and like I said, eat, drink, and be mindful. Yes.
3: Eat, drink, and be mindful, Dr. Susan Albers. But I deserve this chocolate. Uh, We're going to take a short break right now, but coming up next is the author of Stepping Up, How Taking Responsibility Changes Everything, which it does, uh, John Ezo, and he also is a psychologist, Ph.D. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to voiceamericavariety.com, And World Talk Radio will be back in a minute.
1: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Eldonna Ambler. On the show, Eldonna and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.
0: surprise you. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
1: you're listening to the Catherine zock show if you'd like to join our conversation this morning call now the toll-free number is 866-472-5788 that number again is 866-472-5788
3: we're back. I'm Katherine Stock, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays live from 10 to 11, and then we archive, this, archive the show. And as I said earlier on in the show, kind of, I think the theme of this show is responsibility. And here to talk to us about that and his new book is John Izzo. He's Izzo. He is a Ph.D., a psychologist. Stepping Up, How Taking Responsibility Changes Everything. He's also an inspirational leader, besides being an author, a community leader, and hosted a five-hour biography channel TV series. But uh, responsibility, uh, John says and argues that almost every problem can be solved if each of us looks to ourselves to be the agent of change rather than waiting for someone to do it for us. And he shows and points out in his book, and this is what we're going to talk about today, that one person really does matter a lot. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, John.
2: Good Great to be here.
3: All right. So taking responsibility, I can't. I I totally agree with you, and I think that's one of the problems today with a lot of the issues that we have in this country: not taking responsibility for ourselves, making good choices, either as individuals in the community worldwide. So. How do you want to start? What do you want to talk about initially, As uh, each one of us being individuals who have the opportunity to be an agent of change? Uh, What does that mean? You know, I
2: guess the first thing that that I want to say is the most important thing is that this book and this idea of responsibility, stepping up and taking responsibility, is not a a parental finger wagging at you saying, you dullard, you dodo, step up, because because you're not taking responsibility, it's actually very different. What it is is an incredibly empowering idea that if we ask the question, what can I do about whatever it is that concerns you, is bothering you, is happening in your life or in the world, and you take action on what you can do, you'll be happier, more successful, and healthier, and make a bigger difference then if you stop and wait for what someone else is going to do, whether it's in a relationship and you want your partner to change and instead you say, what I can do, if you're concerned about how things are at work or your career and instead of saying, what will someone else do for me, what can I do, if you're concerned about global warming or poverty and you say, what can I do, it's incredibly empowering and it begins to change the picture, and in fact, it's the way the world changes anyway. So that that's where I'd like to begin is by saying this is not a finger wagging at you. It's because you'll actually be happier, more successful, and the world will be a better place if you say what can I do instead of what someone else should do.
3: I mean that it, it sounds so it sounds simple when you say it, but I think that is something that we struggle with every day. I mean, I want to just give. A, a definition maybe you've already done that but responsibility is being accountable for your behavior and to me that word accountable and equating it with, with responsibility
2: is key yeah you know I think it's uh, it, it really begins um, when you you look in the mirror you know and you say you know hey you know what can I do about this how am I contributing to this you know one of the examples I give in the book is, you know, let's say, uh, and and you know, I like uh, one of the things I like about this idea of stepping up and taking responsibility is it's true at every fractal level. So it's true for yourself as an individual, all the way up to the whole society. But let's take you know an individual perspective. You know, so you know, I always I use the example in the book of uh, even though I'm a business person, I feel like I'm not naturally a good networker. You know, and if you ask me why I'm not a natural networker, I can give you all kinds of good reasons. My parents weren't good networkers. I had acne in high school, so it made me kind of shy. I'm naturally an introvert and all those kind of things. But the truth is I can't do anything about any of those things. But but I can learn to be a better networker. I can put myself in a position to learn more. I can stretch myself. and I can't do anything about those excuses if my partner is is not being romantic I can't make them be romantic but I can be more romantic I can choose to bring more romance into the relationship and and I think this is a is a critical idea and such as you said a simple idea but it's actually a profound shift this profound shift from someone else should to what can I do and suddenly I feel incredibly uh, empowered and again we can talk about some some other you know real life examples but I think this part of it is just catching ourselves, when we're in that victim place, like I said, any time you find yourself saying someone else should, ask yourself a different question. What can I do about this thing that concerns me? So I'm now suddenly in a place of responsibility and power, and therefore accountable to make the change that I can make, even if it doesn't seem earth shattering to me.
3: Yeah, and I think the word earth shattering is important because I think many of us will think, well, if I do something, it's going to take too much time, too much money, it has to be a big deal, it has to be, and I think you point out in the book, that's not true, you do it, and I don't know if you just mentioned the word increments, but that's really important. But I also want you to address the fact, because this doesn't sound too good, that, and, and you said this, that the average college student today feels less empowered to change events that will shake, their lives than eighty percent and i don 't know if this is too many statistics the students forty years ago, so why are these what 's the problem here
2: Cause exactly we feel more than the book I talk about the research that shows that we feel more like victims today than any time in the last uh, forty years, so we 're feeling right. more and more like things are out of our control. You know, and I think it's a couple of things have contributed to it. I think the the problems we face now seem so daunting whether it's, you know, global warming or poverty or, you know, the economic collapse. It seems like these things are so large. I think even, you know, the um the the Occupy movement to me was such a fascinating example of I think people feeling so disempowered in a way they just felt they had to do something, you know, about these big things around them. Uh, and then I think the second thing is, inadvertently, we've, we've allowed ourselves to fall into this victim place, you know, where it's become easier to finger point. And as you said, you even see it in the country, you know, where, where, you know, uh, politicians, you know, it's a great time to talk about that, you know, spend yep. most of their time talking about what someone else is not doing, or what someone else is doing wrong, instead of what, what, you know, they can do. And so I think it, we've just fallen into this victim place. And I think the things around us seem so daunting. And that's why it's so important that we begin with, what can I do? You know, and i give you just one simple example for myself. Um, I've been a conservationist all my life. One of the things that concerns me is all the garbage that's, that goes into the oceans. You know, it's choking wildlife in the South Pacific and islands thousands of miles from continents. Huge problem. And what can I do about that? Well, one of the things I've done is I've sort of uh, taken a pledge where, I've, where I have no plastic shopping bags, no plastic water bottles, no plastic straws. Uh, I decided to start a movement, which we're launching in a few weeks, to get millions of people to take that simple pledge. I don't know how many people will take it. Maybe only a 1,000 will or 10,000. But by me taking that pledge, I suddenly felt powerful. Some small thing that I could do that would contribute to a problem that I care about and, and Again, now instead of feeling like a giant victim, I feel like, well, I did something. Maybe it's a small thing. And we forget the power of aggregate influence. I talk about that in the book. We think, well, what does it matter if I do this thing? But we forget if millions and millions of people make those simple steps, the aggregate influence is huge. So in the way the world can't change without us, but it can't change, it can't change because we change, but it can't change without us changing.
3: Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that we lose we lose sight of the power we have in, in the way that you're describing it. I mean, I, I've tried and I just on a personal level and not on the level that you're doing it, but I won't use chemical products in my house and, and cleaning products, a very small thing, but then I talk to people about it and I talk to friends about it and then they begin to do it and that's what you're talking about, you know, the whole aggregate response, and that's really critical. And we do make a difference. We do make a exactly. difference.
2: Yeah. There's two concepts, Catherine, I talk about in the book that I think are so relevant. Because we, we surveyed people for the – when I wrote Stepping Up, we, we, we surveyed people. Why don't you step up? Number one reason, I'm only one person. It won't matter if I step up. Almost 60% of the people said that was the number one reason they didn't step up. So there's two concepts I talk about in the book that are so critical. One is this idea of aggregate influence that we think my one action doesn't matter. And and, and this is true, by the way, in everything. Morale in my workplace is maybe kind of lousy. Everyone's complaining all the time. I can start talking about what's working. I can start being a solution person, not a complainer. And the aggregate influence of one person doing that and then another is huge. The second is what I call the responsibility ripple, which is that when we act and step up, what happens is it challenges others to step up. So, again, if I'm in a relationship, I start being more romantic or kind, pretty good chance my partner will catch that, that virus. If I, in a workplace, stop complaining and start talking about solutions, it starts to be contagious. If I start picking up litter on the street, people notice it. Or if I stop using chemicals and tell my friends, they say, well, maybe I should do that. And so we forget how powerful we really are.
3: John, you mentioned that uh, you, you know, when you were interviewing these people, you, you know, 60% of the people said, well, I, there's nothing I can do. I won't make a difference. So you're asking people why they don't step up. When you ask those people, whether on a big scale or a small scale, why they did step up, what did they have to say?
2: Great question, because what I tried to do for, for stepping up was to go out and find stories of ordinary people who saw a need and decided they could do something about it, you know, whether it was in work or in their community. So I tried to dissect that. And, and in the book, there's great stories, you know, um, you know, uh, and we can talk about some of them. Yeah, a couple, you talked know, a couple about things. Story, see, you know,
3: it's all okay, here's one effective. great
2: story. Okay. Uh, th- three women, um, uh, ordinary women, you know, ordinary people from Colorado, uh, six years ago at New Year's, they set an intention we'd like to do something for the world this year. We don't know what it is. We just would like to do something for the world this year, not for ourselves. Later that spring they 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 had to happen to make a trip to Uganda to Africa. Uh and they're they're in a refugee camp in Kampala. They meet these women who are in incredible poverty, working in a rock quarry for a dollar a day. They they're they're HIV positive. Um, and they show these three women some beads. Jewelry that they make out of recycled paper. They're beautiful beads, but they say the problem is we have no one to buy these. They buy a few beads from the women. They go back to Colorado thinking, you know, we should do something to help these women, but we don't don't have any retail experience. We've never sold beads. They just start showing the beads to their friends. They have a party and sell some of them and send the money back to uh, the, the women in Uganda. And they realize that people love these stories and feel so good about helping these women. I'll make a long story short. No retail experience, no sales experience. They start having bead parties all over America, then Europe and Canada. Now, six years later, they have helped 8,000 women start their own businesses in Uganda, have literally thousands of families have been stabilized and gotten out of poverty. They have a staff now of 150 people, all Ugandans in Kampala, all because three women just set an intention, and, just as, as, and, and, and on our website, steppingupforchange.com, uh, you can actually see videos of six or seven of the people that are featured in the book. So to me, that's a great example. They were so concerned about poverty. Example. What can we do? They did something.
3: That is a great example. Now I want to bring it home because you give another example, that you can do it right here in your own backyard, because this one about the two high school students who stood up to a bully and started a pink shirt day movement.
2: Yeah, great story, great yeah. story. Um, you know, two high school students uh, five years ago, uh, seniors, uh, that day a young uh, freshman, it's his first day of school, his first week in the community, he goes to school, he's wearing a pink T-shirt, and he gets bullied incredibly all day long by three bullies, punched, said, look, you wear that pink shirt ever again, we're going to beat the you know ever-loving crap out of you. Uh, called him a fag, called him a gay. It turns out by the way he as that wouldn't be a reason of course to get beat up or bullied, but he wasn't a homosexual uh, anyway, even though that's what they were accusing him of. He actually wore the pink t-shirt because his mother was a breast cancer survivor and his first day of school he wanted to wear this. So at the end of the day, two seniors, Travis and David, hear about this on their way home from school. And Travis says to David, you know, we've been in this school for four years. We've seen bullying, but we've never done anything. We should do something before we leave. And he says, I have an idea. Let's go out and buy as many pink T-shirts and tank tops as we can, get a hold of as many friends as we can, and let's see tomorrow if we can create a sea of pink. When they came in the next day, not only were they able to give out their 50 pink T-shirts and tank tops, but 280 of the 350 students in the school showed up wearing pink, many head to toe. The bully (laughs) saw the sea of pink through a garbage can in the cafeteria, but was never heard from in terms of bullying the rest of the year. Now there are pink shirt days in 21 countries all over the world because two high school seniors, instead of saying someone else should do something, said, I wonder what we could do. And they were just ordinary kids. I love it. If you go, again, to our, uh, the website, com. you can actually see me tell that story and see a picture of these two kids. And what I love about them is they're geeks themselves, but they decided to step up and do something. And that's this a is great story.
3: That is, that's a story that, ha- well, obviously, and you are telling the story uh, online, but in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools all over, because that's one way – to prevent bullying or to stop bullying, um, I'm sure that you've had a great, well, I'll ask you about what kind of response have you had from the schools?
2: Oh, It's it's great. You know, I think this, you know, something happens when we begin to realize how powerful we really are. And that was my intention, really, in writing, you know, stepping up was to say, look, how powerful we really are when we decide to do something. And... And you know, we could just talk about story after story. And the, the real point I want to make is these are ordinary people. And it's even true in the workplace. One of my favorite stories in the book is, is, is three women in a company who were concerned about work-life balance. Everyone was emailing all weekends. People were scheduling meetings at nine o'clock at night. And these three frontline women just started meeting saying, what can we do about this? You know, it's great if the boss would do something. What could we do? And the first week, all they could agree was, we won't email each other on weekends or nights anymore, and we won't answer each other's emails. And then the next week, they said, well, we won't schedule any meetings after normal work hours. Within, within uh, six weeks, they had 40 people meeting with them every week, saying, what can we do? And a year later, the company of 500 people had adopted uh, most of the things that this small group had came up with, but it all started when they stopped saying what someone else should do and just said, hey, I wonder what we can do about this. And it's a powerful shift when you begin to do it.
3: Yeah, especially, I think, when you're at work, and and particularly women seem to often feel powerless that we can't do anything because, and then listing all the excuses. So that's a great example. I want to take, because we only have, well, we have a few minutes left, but, Two of the chapters in your book, one of the things that, that I, and I think this is a imp- very important point, always begin in the room you are in. What does that mean for all of us?
2: Yeah, always begin in the room that you're in. You know, and that means that begin with what you have with the the opportunities that are in front of you. You know, there's a wonderful story in the book. Uh, I tell the story of the uh, folks who confronted the Russian whaling fleet and actually helped lead to the United Nations ban on commercial whaling. Whales are not extinct in large part today because these people stepped up and did that. They ignited a worldwide anti-whaling movement. But the interesting thing is that um the, with the Rex Weiler, one of the people I feature and you can see his, his story on the website as well, uh, got an email from a young kid who said, I want to do something like you did. I want to stop the whale hunt and Rex emailed him back. He said, Well that's great, but you know, you're twenty years old. What can you do right where you are? And the kid said, Well, he emailed him back, Well I noticed nobody recycles in my neighborhood. So Rex said, well, why don't you do something about that? So long story short, he went out and got a ton of blue boxes. He put together a homemade pamphlet about why recycling mattered and what a difference it would make if everybody did it. Within a month, he had his whole neighborhood with blue boxes filled with recycling. And before that, no one was hardly recycling at all. And the point is, start where you are. You know, don't. Most of the people in, in the book who did great things just began by doing something small. So it's not about ego. It's about what can I do? You know, however small it may be or seem at the beginning, it could grow. And even if it doesn't grow, you feel empowered like you really did make a difference.
3: Well, you say only naive people change the world.
2: Well, exactly. The first thing is believing you can change, you know this this thing about, um, you know, uh, I don't step up because I don't think it will matter. I always tell people, whenever you find yourself saying, in the book I talk about, whenever you find yourself saying, who am I to step up, instead say, uh, who am I not to step up? Why shouldn't I, I have a chance? Uh, every time you think it won't matter if I step up, tell yourself, well, it does matter because one person changing always creates a ripple. Part of it is I always say in terms of self talk i 'm sure you talk about this all the time on your show that you know the thoughts we have are natural. Who am I to step up it won 't make any difference if I do this i can 't do anything about that. but we have a choice about what thoughts we invite to dinner invite to stay for months or weeks, and so don 't invite those victim thoughts to stay for weeks and months instead turn it around to these more empowering ideas and And of course, I think by reading the book, by reading Stepping Up, what people will see is it's not that hard, you know, um, if I just begin to make that shift.
3: Yeah, I think that's true, and, and I, it, when you read the book, that that becomes very obvious. The last one, though, is something that I hear all the time, but, you know, I'm too busy to step up. What do you expect of me? You know, I have to I have a job. I have a family. I have a spouse, a partner. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm too busy. I can't do it. Yes, one person does make a difference, but I don't think I, I can be that person because I am way too busy.
2: Yeah, and you know, and, and I think, uh, it's really true. And uh, again, uh, you know, uh, stories in the book that illustrate what happens. Sometimes it doesn't have to take a lot of our time. Sometimes it's just a small step. And, and, and I always tell people, don't let your, um, legacy be destroyed by the tyranny of what seems urgent at the time. And so often that happens in our lives. You know, we say, well, I'm too busy to, to do this. But somehow when something is important, we find the time for it. And besides, like that work-life ex- balance example, sometimes by our taking action, we wind up having more time in the end because we finally took on something that was important to us. Uh, and so what I would ask is if you're too busy to, to act on something that's important to you, ask yourself, you know, on my deathbed, am I going to be uh, regretting, you know, these this, uh, tyrannical, urgent things that seemed irrelevant in the long run? Or will I say, well, at least I did something about something I cared about?
3: Where do you think you got your ability to to see all this? I mean, you know, you, you, <laughs> even though you had acne when you were younger, <laughs> something happened.
2: Well, you know, a couple of things. One is I think uh, uh my 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 mother was an incredible uh, person who had a deep spirit and taught me from when I was really young, make a difference in the world. That's why you're here. I've also had the privilege of meeting some amazing people. You mentioned the biography channel TV series which later became a, a book, The 5 Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die, in which I interviewed 250 people from age 60 to 106 who who were identified by someone else as the wisest person that they knew. They also told me, look, be a giver, not a taker. Uh, and so I've had such a, a chance to be influenced by so many good people. And when I was really young, I, I saw, and it, in the book I tell some stories of when I was a teenager, I, I saw how powerful I, I was by being a part of some things that I felt did make a difference. And this is part of it, I think, Catherine, until you, you get up and you get involved, You don't know how powerful you are. And, you know, again, on steppingupforchange.com, you'll see the story of a homeless alcoholic who started a recycling revolution and a business that now employs hundreds of homeless people because he just suddenly saw how powerful he really was to change things. And so I think I've had the privilege of of meeting some amazing people, and they've inspired me. You know, I wrote this book, and I'm stepping up more now because I, I met these people
3: and you know i think one of the things also that you that you that you just said is i think traditionally in psychotherapy even we think about well you have to change your mind you have to change from the inside and that will affect what you do on the outside but kind of what you're saying is if you the external what you do just simply just externally will then begin to change the inside your mind your emotions and 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 send you in a positive direction
2: yeah, you know, Sam Keen, uh, you know, great author, said that, you know, traditional therapy, you know, only makes you realize what bag you're carrying around with you. Uh, the rest is work. And uh, from a neuroscientific perspective, uh, every time, and I talk about this in the book, every time we do something, we are more likely to do it again. Every time I choose to act like a victim, every time I don't act and instead just stay passive, I'm more likely to do that the next time. And, and so, I, we have
3: to end with that. I hate to end now, but we've got, um, I just got to, I am, we have one minute left, but I think that's really, really the point of this whole interview. I mean, I think, so I want to, step, uh, I have to mention the book again, Stepping Up, How Taking Responsibility Changes Everything, John Izzo, PhD, and the website SteppingUpForChange.com. Did I get it all in?
2: You got it in steppingupforchange.com, dot com and and uh, get the book it'll it'll change your life and more importantly get out today and just step up and say what can I do it'll change your whole perspective.
3: Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, John.
2: Thank you so much and yeah. keep on doing your good work.
3: Okay, great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You've been listening to voiceamericavariety.com dot com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday morning, ten o'clock Eastern. And uh, if you can't get a chance to listen to us live, then listen to our archives. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.